0: real delight for me to be here because um, the last time i was here was right around new year's um, doing a a half day with terry lesser yoga and and mindfulness and um, the place was so new it didn't feel like it had quite yet like been lived in and this has such a feeling of a spiritual home that I don't know if by coming each week that you've noticed how tremendously the space has been filled, um, not just in, in terms of the visual and material things, but, um, but really in terms of the spirit and the energy. Um, and I felt it very, very strongly when I came here yesterday and again today after having been away for a few months. So um, it's a special joy for me and um, I, I, I am only able to rejoice in, um, in this, um, this center. So the talk that I'd like to give uh, today is titled Living Without Enemies. And I want to begin with um, a discourse that um, occurs in the sutras, in the middle length discourses, where there's a member of the Sakyan clan named Dandapani And one time he was out for a walk, just sort of walking for exercise and walking in the woods when he encountered the Buddha, when the Buddha was sitting under a tree meditating. And he approached the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. You know, the regular courtesies, how are you? Have you had enough alms food? Or whatever it was that that they ask in those days. Um, And then Dandapani sort of asked the Buddha, well, what is it that you teach? What is it that you proclaim? And um, the Buddha said, friend, the sort of doctrine in which there is no quarreling with anyone in the world, where the sort of doctrine where one who lives detached from sensual desires, free from doubt, shorn of worry, devoid of craving for becoming and non-becoming, has no propensity to obsess on labels on what is cognized. So when the Buddha described his teaching in this way, Dandapani sort of shook his head, wagged his tongue, raised his eyebrows so that his forehead was wrinkled in three furrows and then left leaning on his stick. (laughs) Sort of that confused state as he wandered off. And then there was another monk who, who had seen them them talking and approached the Buddha later and asked the Buddha to explain what it was he said to Dandapani. And the Buddha explained it further. He said, if no delight, assertion, or grasping exists for the things by which complicating cognitions and categories occur to a person, then this is the end of the propensity to obsess on lust." aversion, views, doubt, conceit, ignorance, and the passion for becoming. And this is the end of taking up sticks, weapons, quarrels, disputes, accusations, slander, and false speech. Here it is that these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. I think this is an interesting sutra because it defines the Buddha's teaching specifically as that which uproots the mental patterning that leads to quarrels, disputes, and war. It's describing the Buddha's teaching as living without enemies. The Buddha in another discourse said, The world may quarrel with me, but I do not quarrel with the world. It seems a little echoing to me. Is it too high? Should I lower it? So reflect for a moment. What is the movement of mind that creates enemies? What does having an enemy depend upon? Now, in the sutra, the Buddha described these complicating cognitions, and that's kind of a mouthful, even those two words together, complicating cognitions, what does that mean? These are simply the conditions that create conflict. They're not anything that we are unfamiliar with, such as fear, comparison, the comparing mind, anger, aversion, hatred, intolerance, impatience, judgmental condemnations, possessiveness arrogance conceit blame ignorance these are the complicating cognitions repeatedly our practice reveals to us what's going on under the surface that might be the basis for conflict the basis that leads to agitation disputes conflict and war these movements of mind, like fear, aversion, intolerance, etc., and then when we think further about the situations, create mental proliferations and complications around these movements, we entangle ourselves in patterns that are agitating and disturbing. We get entangled not just in the arising of fear or impatience or worry or conceit but we get entangled in the stories and the justifications um, that we tell ourselves about those experiences. We inflame and enhance that basic discomfort of fear and impatience and anger with more and more thoughts of condemning, judging, comparing, um and all of the things that the mind does. Actually our minds can be rather cruel um, to ourselves in the way that we think about things. And yet sometimes we won't even recognise the cruelty in actions that we take. Sometimes the movement of mind that justifies actions doesn't even recognize when it's moving on uh, um, an intention that is really unkind or really in ignorance or in fear. It's very easy for human beings to deceive themselves. And I think a more extreme example might be that a a friend of mine who teaches meditation in the prisons told me that almost everybody who's incarcerated says that it wasn't their fault, that they weren't to blame for the action that they took. They believe that the system was at fault, that somebody else was at fault, that somebody else did something that caused them to do it, or society is to blame. But somebody else is to blame rather than themselves for the actions that they took. So part of taking responsibility in our practice is taking responsibility in our actions and in our lives. And that's a commitment to actually confront the underlying movements of mind that create situations of conflict, agitation, confusion, and in the long run, war. To confront the ignorance within the mind so it's to take responsibility not just for what we do but how do we think about situations how do we perceive and conceive of our own relationship to life we can look in our own interpersonal relationships perhaps in our family with our friends our co-workers How is it that we might create an enemy? Is there ever a shift in your own mind from somebody who does something that you don't like or that hurts you to hating them? That's actually a big step from somebody who does something that we don't like to hating them. And that's a step that we take in our own relationship to that experience. This development of hatred within our own minds is something that we investigate in practice. Reflect for a minute, do you have an enemy? Do you have an enemy? Somebody who's, you're always in opposition to. But the opposition doesn't remain just at a disagreement or a difference of view or a difference of perspective but it's gone the level of, oh, they're real, they're, there's an energy behind the opposition. In your reflection, notice, if you can see how it is you sustain the enemy how you give that person status as an enemy within your own mind through investing your perception of them With ill will or hatred. We create enemies through the thoughts that we think about them. These are part of those complicating cognitions that fabricate and construct the sense of having an enemy. So, what would it be like to live in this world without enemies? without making external situations, that could be other people, other cultures, other religions, into the enemy. And also without making internal states into the enemy. Now meditators sometimes prefer to go in that direction. Do we need to, in our meditation, make states of fear, of judgment, of restlessness, of sleepiness, of confusion, of doubt, the enemy? As we develop in our meditation practice and the continuity of mindfulness increases, we begin to cultivate an attitude not of an adversarial or struggling relationship to to our experience, but rather one of ease of being able to embrace our experience, even the difficult moments, even the confusing moments. When we understand that our own experience is mind-made, flavored by how we perceive our experience, how we interpret it, then we begin to understand that there is no enemy that we haven't constructed. For instance, if I want to drive to Santa Rosa, I get in the car and I drive north, right? I don't need to have a gripe against San Jose the south i can simply go in the direction that i wish to go with some application of wise action wise effort but i don't need to have a direction that i go be in opposition to something else i don't need to put energy of opposition or struggle as though i'm moving away from the south or from San Jose simply by going to Santa Rosa. Those those are ways that we perceive experience that is extra. So many of our actions we can simply simplify so that we just drive north instead of against the south. And then our actions become more and more a simple expression of non-struggle, of clarity and wisdom, rather than an expression of aversion or condemnation. It may seem fairly easy in terms of driving on the freeway one direction or another, but sometimes in political situations and social situations, it's much more difficult. Um, after September 11th, um, about a month after September 11th, I was in a small group of Buddhists who were discussing various um, social issues. And one of them was, um, of course, the response to the terrorist attacks. And one young man in the group, who was, who was quite new to practice, um, was really struggling with trying to find an appropriate Buddhist response. And what he was actually doing and expressing was anger. He was angry each time he saw a flag. Each time he saw a flag on a person's house, in their cars, in the shops, on a button, on a t shirt. Um, and what he, was, he was really very, quite, quite angry. And he interpreted the flags as being a call to war or a justification of war. And yet, when somebody puts up a flag, there can be many, many motivations. It could be an expression of solidarity in a time of grief. It could be an expression of respect. It could be um, many things that are not saying, let's go to war. And yet, it it was a very quick movement in his mind to interpret something particular based upon seeing a flag and then to get angry. But this kind of a reaction raises the question that must be asked in Buddhist communities, which is, what's the movement of mind underneath the reaction? Because the anger was growing up out of interpretations that he made, what was actually happening in that situation? Is anger at terrorists any different than anger at patriots? Or is it Just anger. Is it the same movement of mind that creates interpretations that cause division and lead to conflict? Buddhism is not about party politics and it's not about taking sides. It's concerned both specifically and deeply with the dissolution of suffering. During the Buddha's life, He lived and wandered primarily in two different, two kingdoms, two adjacent kingdoms. And he was an intimate advisor of both kings of both of those kingdoms. And during his life there were times when those two kings went to war and those two kingdoms fought each other. He did not take sides in the disputes and yet during those years he repeatedly commented on the harm that is caused by violence. And he trained his disciples over decades to free their mind from the underlying tendencies toward anger that lead to war. So to commit ourselves to living without enemies is a tremendously demanding practice because it requires that we bring mindfulness and vigilance within our own minds and that we have the equanimity and the endurance to be with other minds and other experiences. Insight meditation practice has us always observing the mind. How do we relate to experiences that arise as we sit? How do we relate to things that we see, that we hear, that we smell, that we taste, that we touch? How do we respond to the things that arise within our own thoughts and emotions and minds? How do we respond to our own belief systems, our values, our ideologies? When we're in a group that supports those beliefs, and how do we respond when we're in a group that challenges those beliefs? We bring mindfulness to all of these situations. There was a um, time in the Buddha's life when um, somebody approached the Buddha who was quite angry, I mean quite furious. And um, he went up to the Buddha um, and Varajava was his name, Varajava. He went up to the Buddha and um, he started just ranting and raging and calling the Buddha all sorts of names and profanities and just sort of giving him a once over verbally. And the Buddha just stood there and heard him and received him. And then when he had finally finished his um, tirade, the Buddha asked him, he said, you're a Brahmin you probably have guests to your home and sometimes serve them meals. And he said, yes, of course, that's part of the custom. I often have guests and serve them great meals. And um, the Buddha said, well, if you offer the guest some delicious curries and some fruits and some rices and um, some delicacies, and yet they do not accept that meal, then to whom does it belong? And the Brahmin said, well, it still belongs to me. And the Buddha said, just so. You might offer these um, insults, this anger, this abuse, but he didn't need to take it on. The Buddha didn't need to receive that gift. He could simply hear it and have the equanimity and the space within to hear that expression without taking it on, without it landing in a place that would create anger and turn that person who was angry at him into an enemy. The Buddha didn't do that. He didn't get angry. But many of us are quicker towards anger. And when we're abused verbally or insulted, we um, get angry. Sometimes it seems like getting anger is the natural response to a situation that threatens us or that doesn't go our way. However, in practice, we start to understand something much deeper than this conditioned response. I had an experience um, in the um, mid 80s when I was cooking at a meditation retreat up in Santa Rosa. And I was the breakfast cook for this meditation retreat. And um, some of you may know, I'm not like an early bird. Um, <laughs> so getting up at, before five o'clock, it was like four something, because there were almost a hundred people on the retreat. So those of you who've cooked for a hundred people will know that it takes a while for the water to boil. It's not like you can just Pop up, pop up, and do instant oatmeal, just boiling that much water would take about forty five minutes, <laughs> so um, I had to make chai and oatmeal and i mean it wasn 't a complicated breakfast, but it was chai and oatmeal and fruits and yogurts and all of those things put out so um, so I would do that every day, it was a two week retreat, and um, each cook got one day off, and I was so looking forward to my day off I mean I was thinking about. I was gonna sleep in until seven o'clock and then I was gonna come down and just eat breakfast and then I was gonna have the day in silence and sit and walk and sit and walk and I'd be so refreshed because I would have slept in until seven o'clock and sort of my whole concept of my day off was pinned on this idea of I'm gonna sleep in until seven o'clock. So the morning gong rings and I roll over and go back to sleep because it was my day off. Um, And then about Less than an hour before breakfast time, after everybody's already in the meditation hall sitting, another cook comes pounding on my door. It turned out that the relief cook didn't show up. So there was very little time and I had to get this breakfast out because there were gonna be a 100 hungry yogis waiting for their breakfast after the morning sit. And so I ran down and cooked this breakfast as fast as I could in my pajamas (laughs) and in a very bad mood. And um, I started. To, I was the the more furiously I cooked. I was literally cooking furiously. And what happened though was I got the breakfast on, but the chai was lukewarm and the oatmeal was lumpy, and I was disappointed and angry. Disappointed in the breakfast and angry in uh, that I didn't get my day off. And so I. Um, put on some clothes and went in and had breakfast with the um, staff at that retreat. The staff and teachers would eat together in, um, in a place where we could, um, we weren't in silence, we could speak. And I was having my breakfast, complaining. And um, I was, uh, some, somebody, the telephone rang and uh, somebody else answered it and it was the relief cook. Um, she had gone out the night before, um, completely forgotten that she was supposed to do breakfast the next morning, didn't think she had any breakfast duties, so she just slept on her friend's couch that she was visiting and just didn't show up. And so she was calling quite upset. And so the person said she sounded quite upset and I sort of responded across the table, she probably senses my fury. (laughs) And Christopher Titmus, my teacher, was sitting right next to me, a teacher, a Vipassana teacher from England. And he turned to me and he said, why do you add anger to an already unpleasant situation? Why do you add anger to an already unpleasant situation? It was a very simple question, but my response was to justify why I added anger to this situation. Because I had a right to be angry. It was my day off. I only got one day off. She was irresponsible, she was wrong, and I won't be able to trust her anymore even though we have another five days to cook together. And then Christopher inquired further and he said, and what do you base your trust on? And I said, performance. I said, if someone does what they say, what they will do, I trust them, and if they do not do what they say, then I can't trust them. Now at the time I thought that was very reasonable. Um, anyway, he just simply informed me that this will inevitably lead to suffering because sometimes people do as they say and sometimes people do not. Could there be another way of relating to this situation? Now, it was only about 7.15 in the morning. LAUGHTER and I totally didn't appreciate this dharmic inquiry. <laughs> I wanted him to be angry with me or to sympathize with me or something. And I wasn't getting the response that I wanted. So I had finished my lumpy oatmeal and I picked up my bowl and I was leaving. <laughs> so I went out. Um, and but So I was holding all of my bowl and dishes and cup and things in one arm as I reached for the door to open the other and I had this kind of epiphany you know the door was closed and I opened it it wasn't a big deal it may have been open and I could have closed it it wasn't exactly in the position that I wanted it to be because my arms were full but it was a very simple and empty gesture to open a door and to close it and it occurred to me that I didn't need the door to be any way other than it was, even though it would have been nice if it was opened. It would have made my going through it easier. It was actually okay. There was a, there was a quality of just seeing the, that it was how it was in the door. And it occurred to me that it would be possible to make breakfast at any time, not needing it to be other than it was. You know, if she was late, if she didn't come, the door was closed, I simply opened it. And that was kind of a revelation to me, to be able to have the possibility of having things be okay, even if they're not the way that I want them to be, to be simply empty of the desire for things to be other than they are. As I was opening that door and had that reflection, I realized that the door hadn't made me angry because it was closed and she hadn't made me angry because she wasn't there, that I had actually made myself angry. It was one of the first times that I saw how I do it, how we do the anger ourselves, even if it seems to be somebody else's because of what somebody else has done and as soon as i saw the way that i had fabricated the anger based upon how i chose to perceive of myself in that relationship and in that interaction and what i wanted from the situation and i knew that my i had a role in it then i knew i could be free of it before i saw my role in it there was no possibility to be free of it I knew absolutely that if I had created it, I could cease to create it. If I had fabricated the anger, I could cease to fabricate it. I was not at the mercy of it. We really do have tremendous influence over the mental states that we experience. Just because somebody acts badly to us and perhaps even downright cruelly. It could be out of innocent irresponsibility, which I think was the case with the oatmeal. It could be out of blatant cruelty, which also sometimes happened, or out of unseen competitive um, motives or resentments from occurrences that happened way in the past. Whatever the cause of somebody else's actions toward us, we still don't need to add anger to an already unpleasant situation. There's another um, situation that uh, was recorded in the sutras that uh, um, happened with Sariputra. And there was a group of people that were praising Sariputra and saying what a great monkey was, how incredibly patient he was, how... Realized and understanding he was, and they were sort of singing his praises. And there was a, a local, um, a local Brahmin who heard this, overheard this, and said, "Well, he seems so great only because he hasn't been tested." And so this man decided to test him. And as Sariputra was walking on his alms round, he came up behind him with a big stick and batted him on the back of the head and head and back. And Sariputra sort of just sort of like was caught for a moment, stopped, reflected what had happened, and then Sariputra continued to walk. And this man was so kind of um, humbled that, that he was wrong, that Sariputra actually was as great as, as he was praised um, and claimed to be, that he, and he felt great remorse for having just um, assaulted. This great, uh, this great monk, that he ran up, caught, caught him and did a full prostration in front of him and begged him for pardon, begged him for forgiveness and asked him please not to continue on his alms round, but please come to his home and he would serve him with his own hands. And Sariputra consented and he went to the home of this man and received the day's meal. Now, during the time that he was having his meal, a mob formed outside of, of, of this man's house because some people had witnessed the assault and had gone into the village marketplace and collected people together to, um, to come make this man pay. And as soon as he came out of the house, they were gonna beat him, you know, an eye for an eye, of- beat for a beat, whatever. (laughs) um, But Sariputra came out first and saw the angry mob and had them disperse. And what he said was, he said, who did the brahmin strike? And since it was me that he struck, and I have given my pardon, it's over now. Go your ways. And he dismissed them. So when I read this sutra, I think about how often people actually do apologize and in some way or other ask for pardon or express some regret. Do we forgive those who ask our pardon? And can we forgive without requiring some vengeance, some punishment? The Buddha did not teach nonviolence or ahimsa as a passive form of protest or as a way of um, enforcing Our views of peacefulness. Ahimsa is a fundamental underlying principle of the whole dharma. Non-harming is a distinguishing characteristic of the dharma. That's a quote from the sutras. Non-harming is the distinguishing characteristic of the dharma. And yet the Buddha and the elders of his time were actually very practical. They didn't live in an isolated bubble protected from abuse, isolated from war, hunger, or poverty. Actually, they lived in the thick of it all, and the Buddha trained his disciples to be able to meet the abuse without anger. The Buddha shined as one who could be in the midst of hatred without hating, who could meet cruelty with love, who could meet ignorance with wisdom, and who could meet intolerance with patience. As many of you probably know, during the Buddhist time, the elders wandered and lived often in fairly remote and desolate areas, often forests, and they traveled sometimes in quite small groups, one or two or three or four, and they were not armed. And so um, those places, these forests and deserted roads, Um, where they traveled, were also the home of outlaws, of dacoits and bandits. So the Buddhist monks and nuns were quite vulnerable. We are also vulnerable. We don't live in an ideal world protected from all harm. So it's interesting to consider in the Vinaya, the early code of conduct for the monastics, that there were specific rules that regarded how the monks were to defend themselves and allowed the monks to defend themselves from attack. For a monk to fight in self-defense was not an offense. If he could do so without anger or hatred arising is in his mind. If he fought even for self-defense with anger or hatred in his mind, it was an offense. There's a, um, a verse from the um, middle link Discourses. Monks, even if hoodlums were to cut off your limbs, if you became hateful towards them, you would not be carrying out my teachings. Rather, you should practice. Our hearts will remain unaffected. We will say nothing evil. We will maintain loving kindness and a heart free of hate. We shall practice suffusing the person with our heart filled with loving kindness. And after doing so to this person, we will practice suffusing the entire world with our heart filled with immeasurable loving kindness. This is how you should practice. How many people here do some loving kindness practice? Can I just see a show of hands? A fair chunk of you. There's a phrase in the traditional sequence. Some of you may be using your own sequence, but the traditional phrase may be, may you be free of danger and harm. May you be safe from danger and harm. Do you ever contemplate what is the real danger? Because the dangers are not only external. They're not just from bandits and robbers and car accidents and various people's anger. But it's the very force of greed, hatred and delusion as reactions in the mind that are the danger. These create the separations in the heart. They create the foundation that later leads to conflict and cruelty in the world. Metta is to live in this world without hostility. Metta is the experience of living without enemies. From the Dhammapada, conquer anger with non-anger, conquer wickedness with goodness, conquer stinginess with giving, and the liar with truth. In some way, we must each grapple with the movements of mind that make enemies possible. From the opening of the Dhammapada, all we experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with the corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of an ox. All we experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind. And happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those carrying ill will such as this, hatred does not end. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying ill will such as this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non hatred alone does it end. This is the eternal truth. Some of you may have heard that phrase that translated slightly different. Hatred does not end through hatred, but by love alone does it end. But I think the translation is more accurate of, but by non hatred alone does it end. Avihesa, avihimsa is the thought of non-cruelty or harmlessness, and it's one of the three wise intentions on the Eightfold Path. We don't, this this teaching is a teaching to cease the movement of mind, the intentions of hatred, the thoughts of cruelty. We don't necessarily need to overlay an expectation or demand to love, but simply Uproot the underlying forces that create hatred. See how hatred functions and cease to fuel that movement of mind. If aversion in our minds, not liking something, is unrecognized, it often develops into hatred. Because it proliferates through thoughts and justifications and can lead into fairly rigidly held beliefs. So as we look into our minds and see, how does hatred occur in our own minds? It's very helpful to investigate a moment, a time, an experience when you've known hatred. I saw it very clearly when I was um, doing practice one time in a monastery um, in the forests of Thailand. And I was doing a rains retreat there, a three month retreat during the monsoon season and it was very wet. And it happened to be a very crowded monastery. And the facilities were minimal, to um, say the least. Um, And so the experience of being in a monastery in the monsoon for three months is basically that nothing ever dries. It's always wet. So I wash my clothes and, you know, wait for some patch of sun and, you know, hang them out. But in this monastery, women were only allowed to hang our clothes underneath the um, rafters of the meditation hall, the sala. And so, you know, I washed my clothes one day, and I hung them up. I hung a string under the sala, and I hung them up along with all the other women's clothes, and you know, sort of said a little prayer, may they dry a little bit, (laughs) Um, rather than just mildew. Um, So anyway, I went about my business and came back a few hours later and found that there were um, that somebody had taken my clothes that were spread out on a line. Um, and piled them all up and hung their clothes on my line. Now, my clothes were not dry. I immediately got angry. Just, it was amazing how quick it happened. And there was this incredible sequence of thoughts that happened all within the space of, I don't even think it was two minutes, but it was very fast and the sequence of thoughts was was quite quite horrifying actually to see in my own mind. Um, First I got angry. Then I started to think about who would have done it. And then I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just go pile their laundry up and take my space back. Um, and then I thought, the minds went very quickly to, um, I, um, I hate the system. Why do women have to hang our laundry underneath the solid to dry? Um, why can't it be out in the wind where it might dry faster? Then I started to get angry at the, at the conditions in the monastery, how primitive they were, how there wasn't, um, I mean there wasn 't hardly even electricity nah, 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 how the situation wasn 't very good and nah, 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 and then I started to get angry at um, at the culture that um, relegated women 's laundry to under there and how poorly they treated women in the monastery and how overcrowded we were on such a small area and then nah, 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 and then comparing between what the, the the men had on their side of the river, they actually had a dryer and <laughs> it was a it was a wood dryer, but they had a dryer. They had a, a system of fire that would dry the monks' robes. Um, and then pretty soon, I was hating Thailand <laughs> and I was like ready to get my passport from the, um, the, 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 the place I kept it safe and, um, and leave in the middle of this three month retreat. From somebody moving my laundry, I was ready to leave the country. And that all happened very, very quickly. So in a moment when mindfulness doesn't arise, (laughs) then the mind can initially, uh, there can be this swell of anger and proliferation that rides on an unpleasant experience. On that case, an unpleasant visual moment. I saw something I didn't like. But as soon as I finally clued in to the fact that there were thoughts that were arising and brought mindfulness and investigation into the experience, it ended as quickly as it arose. As soon as I saw the thoughts and was willing to feel the pain of nurturing thoughts of hatred, feel that in my own mind, then it all fell away. As soon as I ceased to fuel it, There was nothing to sustain or hold hatred in place. Anger is an unpleasant state in the mind, but it doesn't stay static simply because it is a mental state. There's no mental state that stays static. So like all emotions, it arises and passes. Anytime there's a sense of continuity in an emotion where we say, I have been angry all day, it's not possible. It's not possible for one movement of mind to be angry all day. uh, uh, The only way one could experience repeated moments of anger is to repeatedly fuel it through thinking about it, through thoughts and thoughts and thoughts of justification that are reinforcing the anger. Because it is impermanent, anger naturally transforms. The question is, how does it transform? when it's influenced by ignorance, lack of investigation and mindfulness, it's transformed into hatred. It will go from seeing something we don't like into anger, into prejudice and into, um, into hatred. That happens when we indulge it with justification and when we're identified with it. The challenge in practice is to meet our experience with mindfulness. So we transform the same anger that arises, the same reaction, not into hatred and prejudice, but transform it into clarity, compassion, and wisdom. That's the process of meditation practice. I'd like to end with a line from Isa, the Japanese poet from the 18th century. He said very simply, in the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. May we live together in this world without enemies. Well, thank you and have a lovely Sunday.